Hey everybody, welcome to the Into the Adultverse podcast. Um, today we're going to be doing something a little bit different from what we've normally done. It's going to be a book review, hopefully the first of many. Um, so we're going to be discussing the book Sapiens by Yuval, um, I forgot how to say his last name actually, how do you say his last name? Noah Harari. Yeah, uh, and we're going to be talking a little bit about you know what the book is about, our personal thoughts on it, and kind of like, do we think it's worth the hype? Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's get into the episode. I feel like this is a terrific book to start our um, book review series, and yeah, we do anticipate that this will be a series, and we'll definitely um, look towards discussing a lot more interesting books in the future, but I feel like this is a great way to start it off. Mm-hmm. Um, this is definitely a book that a lot of people, if at least that haven't read, have at least heard of from someone, and wow, so... Yeah, we should, okay, so let's just let's um, dive in by let's just briefly talking about what this book is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the book *Sapiens* is essentially um, you can think of it like a history of humankind up to present day. So they talk about a lot, a lot of different stuff, but uh, everything from you know like how did humans start on Earth? What were the different species like vying for competition to be like the primate, um, and you know how that competition sort of played out to the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the renaissance, the, uh, you know, bringing up of the scientific method and how that changed, how the scientific revolution changed this as well, all the way up to present date. And things like, you know, um, how our language was shaped by, you know, different circumstances and what our language says about us. And um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of anthro- anthropology for sure, but also delves into like some realms of philosophy and you know how society organizes itself so like economics and things like that as well science technology like it really does touch a bit of everything but it doesn't do so in a shallow or superficial way um if it does bring up a topic it definitely does do a good job of um looking into it or giving enough credence towards uh, putting the work towards discussing the topic mm-hmm. and that's something i really appreciated appreciated about the book Mm-hmm. So for the, I so what kind of person would you say this book would be suited for? It's a good question. Um, you know, I think, I honestly think everyone should read this book at the, at the risk of like, you know, I, I don't want to say that about every book and I, I feel really strongly about a lot of books, but I think this is <laughs> definitely like a problem that, I mean, every human can speak to. If you're at all interested in like, you know, how humans came about, like what, the, what history is, if you're interested in history at all, culture, anthropology like anything like that it's very very valuable to read i think it's just valuable for anyone to read because you know like i think everybody kind of as a human being should be aware of like you know what human beings are how they started like you know kind of like some basic history facts and it it does a good job i think of like explaining some cultural forces that i think are very very important things like you know what is a fiat currency you know what is our current economic system how does a democracy function why do we have a democratic system right now you know what i mean things like that like i think those are very basic things that i think everybody should know about um and i think a lot of people do have a you know kind of want to learn more about that sort of thing so yeah uh, i would recommend it to anybody that's like kind of curious about that sort of stuff but it's also something you shouldn't really tread into lightly um it definitely does touch up on a few I want to say a, few, a little more like incendiary topics. For example, I know people can get very defensive about the topic of religion. And the book does go to speculate, I suppose, 
um, the origin of religion and where it comes from. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily directly challenge religions for you know, religion's sake, but it more so describes the societal forces that underpinning the propagation of religion through um, a society. And mm-hmm. it's important to go through the book with an open mind for that reason. If you go through it with your preconce- preconceived notions of what's right, it's going to be a bit of a tougher read to get through. But if you can stay open-minded about it, it definitely will be a good exercise in self-reflection about your beliefs. Um, so for that reason, I also believe that the book is very much useful. Um, and I guess like using that as a segue, uh, you want to talk about a couple of the uh, spoilers ahead. I guess we should also mention this disclaimer. But um, if you do get to read the book, they'll... It'll, um, Harari does a way better job of us of um, detailing some of these points, but you yeah, want to get into uh, some of the point, like things about the book that you found particularly valuable or interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, spoiler alert. Obviously, we're gonna talk about some of the stuff that this book talks about. Fortunately, it's not a novel or anything like that, so I don't think you know there's any like you know actual spoilers. Like spoiler alert: humans have the industrial <laughs> revolution. Like, okay. I think we all knew that. So yeah, don't worry too much about that. But I think what we want to aim with episodes like this is like really talk about, you know, what our key findings were from the book, whether the book was yeah. a valuable read or not. Yeah. And, you know, discuss some of the ideas as well, even in a conversational setting. So with that being said, like here's like a quick overlay of the book. So it's like split into four different sections, really. Uh, there's about 20 chapters, like five chapters in each section. Part one is the revolution of the mind. Part two is... Uh, what was part two? One second. It's in my notes here. Uh, Revolution of the land. Uh, part three is the creation of a global society. And part four is the revolution of science. So going back to part one, the revolution of the mind, it basically takes talks about like how the human mind was brought up. So like, you know, the different human species that existed in the very beginning. And then sort of like the, the, the things that were unique to us um like language gossip and imagined realities that kind of like those are the three things he he focuses on but those are the things that he thinks that kind of influenced us to become you know the top prime the top species in the world really um so he also talks about things like the life of a forager human migration and the mass extinctions that resulted like as a result of humans kind of ascending um so i think one of the things that really really stood out to me here was gossip so he talks quite heavily about gossip and how it was kind of a method for humans to build trust um and he actually argues that you know gossip was and gossip is is i mean i'm sure everyone knows what gossip is but you know like let's say you're a hunter-gatherer society and you know you come home and you talk shit about your husband or like whatever is going on in your life or like someone else in the tribe that you don't like uh gossip is probably the easiest way for somebody to build trust with somebody else because you're essentially like saying like hey i'm willing to you know talk shit about this person to you um and so he argues that you know gossip was essential for cooperation and actually gives you an advantage in terms of passing on your genes because um well the, the more you're able to cooperate and build that trust within like a tribal setting or a group setting the more likely it is that you're actually able to survive especially because humans are like very much pack animals like dogs and wolves and that sort of thing so yeah uh, that was a really sure. interesting point and i think the second most valuable point from that part was uh kind of the idea of imagined realities and shared fictions this is actually a huge huge point 
overall with his book uh but he essentially argues that humans are are you know can uniquely do this thing called intersubjectivity and um that's what he kind of refers to it as but the the essential idea is you can have shared hallucinations about things that don't necessarily exist but that you can all like believe in so an example of that is religion like you know there doesn't need to be physical evidence or existence of religion in the world for like a bunch of people to believe it at believe in it at the same time um and one thing that was super super interesting actually that he talked about was the idea of a corporation um as also like part of that fictional reality and that intersubjectivity so you know kind of consider it for a moment as as a thought experiment um something like google now if everybody in the world woke up tomorrow and forgot that Google had ever existed, would Google still exist? You know, what is Google physically? Yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of buildings and a bunch of people and, you know, a name on a corporation in some paper somewhere filed with like the U.S. government. But what is it? You know, yeah, it's a site, too. But like it's like a company itself doesn't really exist. It, it's just like something that we all agree to believe in existing. And that's kind of one of the points on intersubjectivity that he uh, really, really pushes. So, yeah, I mean, those are two big areas of thought. I want to kind of hear your thoughts on that, too. For sure. Um, I think for some, like, the the whole notion of a corporation being an imagined reality might be a little, like, too abstract for some people to grasp. Because um, it is, like, a tough thing to wrap your mind around. And it's a little mind-bending, but... A bit of a simpler way to look at it is like sports, for example, right? Mm. Like when you're playing soccer or football for the cultured. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, so you got, you have your 11 on both sides of the pitch. And the only way the game works is if everybody agrees on the rule of the game. You agree that you can't use your hand to run the ball across the pitch and throw it into the net. Mm -hmm. As soon as people stop believing in that, this whole quote unquote reality, this whole the, the whole purpose or the, the guidelines or the rules of the game fall apart and then it doesn't exist anymore. Soccer doesn't exist anymore as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the idea behind it. Um, mm-hmm. For that was definitely like um, the whole thing about imagined realities was definitely the highlight of that part of the book for me though, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, another really interesting thing that I enjoy that he talked about was, Basically, when he was speculating about the what he calls the tree of knowledge mutation. Mm-hmm. So basically how somehow and like we still don't really understand why or how this happened in us as a species and not any other homo species. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, our brain evolved in a way to um, procure this quote unquote tree of knowledge mutation that allows us to do all this crazy stuff for us to be able to abstract, to be able to produce language in such a versatile way, mm-hmm. um, produce these imagined realities so that we can cooperate in these massive groups. Uh, when across nature, you can't really see anything more than a group of like 150 individuals. And that's within the um, simian realm mm-hmm. uh, being able to cooperate together. Right. So that we, for some reason, evolved this capacity, which inherit, which, um, inadvertently allowed us to kind of take over the world eventually. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing to kind of just think about. It's a little humbling too, because if it weren't for that, you know, Neanderthals, for example, they could box us. 
Like if it was a one v one, we we're taking a massive L to them. But the only reason we were able to like, uh, wipe out the other um, hominid species, and that's kind of how that's our origin species. All right, this our that's our origin story. Yeah, it started that, with that's genocide. Part of our character arc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just destroyed all the other um, uh, hominid species out there just so we can take over the land, mm-hmm. and uh, that was after many belts of intersex and stuff like that. So that's kind of it's kind of weird, but definitely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it, that's a really valuable point. It's important to remember that more generally in nature, like you know, humans don't have the sharp sharp claws or like the teeth or the athletic ability of. Uh, pretty much anything and that's not just because you know we've somehow de-evolved because we're sitting inside all day like first off evolution doesn't work on a time frame like that so whoever thinks that is wrong um (laughs) but second off like yeah we were always like that like we never had great physical abilities ever and the only reason that we're successful as a species is because of things like you know all, all the mental faculties that we have and language is a huge one um he talks about how you know our language allows us to describe things temporally and also abstract things. So, you know, rather than just saying like, oh, there's a lion there, we can say there was a lion here at this point in time at this creek past the ford two days ago. You shouldn't go there anymore. Or like, you know, things like that that allow us to be much more versatile and, you know, do things like take territory away from other competing species or things like that. So I thought that was definitely really interesting. Um, But yeah, going on to part two the revolution of the land i think that was that was a really interesting part too and i think the key sort of takeaway i had there was that um in fact humans actually had somewhat of art of an arguably better life before the agriculture revolution so he talks something about a little bit about the life of the forger versus you know the life of somebody during the agricultural revolution and so for those of you who are not familiar as much the agricultural revolution is like widely considered to be like the point at which human species kind of like went to that next step right so you know we stopped like just being a slave to land and like going wherever we could find food and like always constantly being nomadic and moving around and being afraid of predators and things like that to living off the land built like growing crops you know going through the seasons more cyclically um, having permanent dwellings because you know we had to be by our crops um, it also resulted in way higher population density. So, you know, the first things that were like towns or cities came up. Um, and because of that as well, we also went through a ton of like different, you know, language and me- mechanistic changes because of that. Be- and one of those things is actually interesting left writing. So we needed a way to like kind of keep track of our crops and things like that. So numbers and writing were uh, kind of an indirect result of having this more time and all these crops to kind of, you know, um, and actually being able to record them and see progress and things like that. So there are definitely a lot of good things that came out of the agricultural revolution. And it's definitely the foundation for the kind of society we have now. But um, he actually argues that the life of a forager was better than the life of somebody during the agricultural revolution, at least the average person. And um, there's a lot of different reasons. But I think some of the main ones are you were much less susceptible to disease because you ate a much more varied diet. Um, and you were exposed to a lot of more pathogens um, and population density was lower. So and living spaces were a lot larger, like you literally lived across the entire world. You weren't like cooped up in a room or anything like that. So because of all those reasons, um, humans during the agricultural revolution actually died way more often from things like diseases and uh, infections and that sort of thing. Uh, the other thing is leisure and free time. 
um, when you're part of an agricultural society, um, you know, there are a lot of roles in different agricultural societies, but essentially your work is to uh, take care of the land, right? Take care of your crops. And that actually takes way more time than uh, time spent foraging and hunting. Typically, the average forager could get enough food to feed their family and stuff in like three to four hours in the morning. And, you know, males would be the primary people that were hunting. And that would take, you know, anywhere from uh, like five to six hours. And then the rest of the day, you're pretty much chilling. You know, you're spending a lot of good time with your tribe and you're very interconnected because you have to be in your tribe. You know everybody very well. You trust everybody very much. Um, and it's a very small, exclusive community that you kind of kind of do everything with. And versus, you know, when, when cities come up and towns come up and agricultural society like that, you start having a lot more divisions in society in terms of who owns the land and who does this. And you have a lot more work to do. So you actually have a lot less leisure time. And it results in things like inequities now because, you know, mm -hmm. if somebody owns the land, somebody doesn't own the land. Versus if you're a forager, it's like, I mean, you're all out there foraging for berries. So it's very equitable in that sense. So I thought it was really interesting because I always kind of assumed that, you know, humans are naturally tending towards the state that makes them happiest. But he actually argues that humans were happiest pre-agriculture revolution when we were hunter-gatherers. And we're also way yeah. more physically fit too. That was another point. But yeah. Yeah, it's just... Um, yeah, my thought is that ever since the agricultural revolution, things have just been going downhill ever since. <laughs> Um, you can definitely see that <laughs> well it definitely if you like depending on what way you look at it of course like as mm -hmm. a whole and like this is an interesting point that he kind of touches on i'm not sure at what point uh at what part in the book but mm -hmm. the whole aspect about how we tend to put ourselves on a pedestal now right in respect to the other um species that we shared this earth with yeah and yes as a collective humanity is way more knowledgeable than ever before in terms of meeting necessities mm -hmm. but at the level of the individual the those ancient hunter-gatherers were far more knowledgeable and they were able to be far more self-sufficient mm -hmm. um and the agricultural revolution was that first point in which if and if i remember this correctly he termed it like niches for idiots mm -hmm. um were able to open up right because you can increasingly rely on the skills of others for survival after that point when prior to that, when we were those um, hunter-gatherers, we had to be able to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like when you were out there in the wild, like foraging or hunting, whatever, like you couldn't rely on other people to save you all the time. So past the agricultural revolution, we be, we've started to become like increasingly more specialized and mm -hmm. we kind of have lost that basal primal ability to just survive out in the wilderness. Like if I were to get thrown out into the woods today, I'd probably be dead within like the week, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, in that light, we definitely have lost some of our ancestry. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. That's, that's a huge point as well. Um, in terms of like ancestry and natural selection as well, like it kind of takes a slowdown when, you know, somebody who not necessarily wouldn't have, or maybe wouldn't have survived in a hunter gatherer society now survives mm -hmm. in an agricultural society. Um, so it's, that, that brings up an interesting point as well. Um, but yeah, I think another interesting point is that anxiety kind of started with ag the agricultural revolution. Um, yeah. You know, we live in anxious times, so it's, it was an interesting point. But basically, anxiety about the future didn't exist uh, kind of before um, like the agricultural revolution because 
uh, people didn't really like know what was coming next. Like they didn't really have the ability to affect control over things coming in the future. Like you can't really change events as nomads. Um, an example could be like, if there's a lion that comes up, like you're gonna die, you know what I mean? Like that, that's not something that's in your control. So it's not really something to have anxiety about versus um, cycles of agriculture actually resulted in a society that was like much more slow paced. And you actually had things to lose in terms of like ownership of land or ownership of crops. And so there was a lot of anxiety around like growing seasons or things like that. So, you know, if you ever want to find a root cause for your anxiety, you can just blame it on the agriculture revolution. That's exactly why you have so much anxiety in your life. And now we had depression um, and everything too. So Oh, yeah, yeah. Everything kind of rolled downhill from there. So definitely yeah. a good point. <laughs> and then the last point I want to bring up about part two is writing. So I kind of touched on that briefly before, but... Um, Writing was kind of an essential piece of the human repertoire, the human like arsenal, I guess, because um, humans, the human brain actually did not evolve to memorize things like facts and numbers. We're really good at remembering things like um, spatial relations and gossip as well. We're really, really good at remembering that. Um, I'm sure if you ever went to high school, you can think back right now and you can remember who is dating who, who cheated on who. Like we're really good at remembering interrelational things like that um, and space things but we're actually not that good at remembering numbers facts and that sort of thing so writing was a kind of essential for us to like i said keep track of our crops and things so that actually started around the agricultural revolution as well um and i think something like a little bit of a small aside if you've ever done any research into like memory champions and like people who are like great at memorizing lists of things like and like numbers or whatever um, that's actually a technique they use because they know that humans, you know, kind of evolved to have better spatial maps of memory. So uh, what a lot of people do is they'll visualize like a room or something like that or like a route. Um, and they'll actually like store every number in a different part of the room. So like you'll say like the number seven is on the desk right now. And the number eight, if, if eight is the next number, is in the corner by the by the bottom right corner of the room. And then on top of my monitor is number 65, which is the next number in the sequence. Um, so they'll actually do things like that, which I thought was really, really cool. That was so, super interesting, yeah. If anyone's curious, um, I think Sherlock Holmes was probably the one who popularized it. With And the whole technique is known as like a memory palace. Mm-hmm. Um, it It is tough to get into, but yeah, it, it does work though. It does work. So it is proven 100%. to work. And if you can stick with it, just Google memory palace and you can figure out how to do that. And just pick a room that you know well enough to be able to kind of navigate it. Mm-hmm. um but yeah, yeah that, that is a really good point though yeah and is it the next part where he starts getting into like money and stuff like that uh so yeah that's part three so part three is the creation of a global society so he goes over three main things the monetary order the direction of cultural evolution uh the imperial order and the religious order and kind of alternate paths of history so those are like the five chapters i think in it um but I think one of the really interesting things that he started off with was the power of and value of cognitive dissonance. Um, so I don't know if everybody's familiar, but cognitive dis- dissonance is essentially when we hold two or more thoughts or beliefs that are incompatible with our own head. Um, so a classic example of this in the West, especially, is the idea of equality versus individual freedom. So we want to live in a society where everybody is free to do whatever they want, but we also want equality in our society. So we need to have equal resources, opportunities, uh, and everybody should get not just like equality, but equity as well. Right. Um, And the difference there being, uh, you know, everybody doesn't start off the exact same. Everybody gets what they need as a quarter to society. So that's why things like welfare, uh, you know, disability checks, things like that. Right. Um, 
So those are actually two fundamentally opposing forces. Like the more freedom you have, the more freedoms you give people, the more it results in some people like abusing that freedom or using that freedom to gain a disproportionate amount of, you know, resources or whatever it is. Um, and so that kind of cognitive dissonance is one of the things that kind of helped establish global societies, because once we we're able to kind of hold these opposing viewpoints in our head, we we're able to like kind of start building political systems around those. And it's very interesting because this is one of the most basic kind of like human organizational problems. And that's actually exactly how politics plays out in the U.S. as well. So we have the Democrats versus the Republicans and the Republicans, conservatives, i.e., are much more like about freedom versus Democrats are much more centered around equality and equity. Um, so that's like a very fundamental cognitive dissonance that we deal with as a country as well. So I think that was pretty cool. I feel like money, too, is um, a source of cognitive dissonance for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, just because, I mean, I feel like a lot of people are of the school of thought that, you know, money, not necessarily that it's a, the root of all evil, but there's this inherent danger towards becoming too obsessed with money. And it's just mm-hmm. this self-propagating, like, loop. And once you start falling into it, you can't get out of it. And because of that, you know, they think that it's just this... Um, source of temptation of like hedonism Mm -hmm. and there's others who think like okay well money can solve all my problems Mm -hmm. and he does take an interesting take on uh money in the book and i'm just gonna grab like a quick excerpt here because like i i like the way he said it Mm -hmm. um but he quoted uh for thousands of years philosophers thinkers and prophets have besmirched money and called it the root of all evil Be that as it may, money is also the apogee of human tolerance. Money is more open-minded than language, state laws, cultural codes, religious beliefs, and social habits. Mm -hmm. Money is the only trust system created by humans that can bridge almost any cultural gap and that does not not discriminate on the basis of religion, gender, race, age, or sexual orientation. Thanks to money, even people who don't know each other and don't trust each other can nevertheless cooperate effectively. Mm Mm-hmm. Money is the that thing that tends to bridge all of us, regardless of our background, mm-hmm. and it's in in that light. Money is just it's a crazy thing to think that we built it up, and again, like it it falls under that realm of imagined realities too, right? Mm-hmm. If we were to all just stop believing, like okay, well, this little piece of paper is useless to me. I don't care about that. I want your gold. You know that at that point, that money just falls apart, mm-hmm. and then people devote their entire lives towards. Um, amassing it right mm-hmm. and i don't i don't mean to get too um, nihilistic or get into this like, apocalyptic frame of mind but yeah yeah, yeah especially it's, given it's, current circumstances it's, yeah. especially <laughs> given current circumstances but if the world does start to end you know a billion dollars isn't going to save you from everybody out here like running like with that purge mindset yeah, yeah. for sure um yeah i so think you want to yeah my favorite part about that you said is like i as you said, like it's definitely part of that shared and unimagined reality, that whole concept of intersubjectivity. And that's definitely woven throughout the book. I think in my opinion, that's like, that was his thesis throughout this book. And I'll get into a little bit of critiques on that as well. But um, yeah, like, you know, without that shared imagination and shared belief in money. And like you said, it's the biggest form of trust, really money in our, in our world. Like you always trust the value of a dollar. Um, you always trust that, you know, like money is, 
what money says it is. And that is very, very, very powerful in terms of organizing a society um, because of a lot of different things. But essentially, it, it overcame the problem of bartering. And once we overcame that problem, we we're able to come become like much more of a global society and not just a global society, but also a society that transcends culture. Um, you know, in a basic bartering system, you always have to have somebody available to barter with. And even if you don't have somebody available, you need to have somebody available for exchange. Let's say you have a goat and you have a sheep and uh, I want a sheep, but you don't want a goat. I got to get apples first, find somebody who wants a goat instead of apples and then switch those over. You want apples, so then I can trade my apples with you. And that like sort of thing creates so many different inefficiencies. And the monetary order and like fiat currency is kind of like what allowed us to progress beyond that and allowed us to have things like empires, right? where everybody everybody under that empire uses the same currency and has like a mutual shared trust and understanding that that thing is backed by value, right? Um, so I think that was really, really interesting. Uh, and with mm -hmm. that kind of like advent of, you know, things like cognitive dissonance, uh, the monetary order uh, came the, you know, natural extension of that with religion. And religion, um, I think he kind of argues is basically another tool to conquer human beings and another kind of shared reality where you very much have this like thing that doesn't exist in the physical world that everybody kind of believes in and it allows you to organize society in a specific way so you know especially as modern day humans a lot of our values and you know the things we believe in like don't kill people don't steal don't do this don't do that are very much have their or very much have their roots in religion and i think that was pretty cool as well um yeah i mean i have a, I have a lot of thoughts on religion but i'd like to hear what you think as well it was a, it's a bit of a tricky topic but um just like how I, he, how he discusses it in the book more so than your personal beliefs maybe. yeah for sure for sure yeah. <laughs> um i do like the way that he approaches it from um like a scientific anthropo anthropogenic um perspective mm -hmm. and it makes sense like in theory like it makes sense why religion would arise um in that way mm -hmm. just because it is a powerful force right when there are things especially like back then when you know like we we obviously have far more control over just like the elements um harnessing natural resources and there's the energy provided to us by um like the sun and other forces mm -hmm. we have a lot more control over our environment now than we did before and back mm -hmm. then like it was pretty scary you know to just leave everything up to chance for the most part so it did bring a lot more comfort when you can ascribe these uncertainties to a superordinate power or being that you could then appeal to Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, oh, the god of the forest, please, like, protect my tribe so that right, we don't yeah. get devoured by lions in our sleep. <laughs> um, it is a powerful motivator. And um, I feel like in being able to uh, um, appeal to, like, that 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 power uh, through these uncertain moments, it allows you mm -hmm. to go forth with this, with more veracity, with more yeah like confidence in everything mm -hmm. you do um conviction i think is the word you're looking for conviction yeah that's a, yeah that's exactly what i was looking for <laughs> um and also like looking at which religions were able to 
propagate and be the most successful through yeah. times. It's interesting looking at it um, from a natural selection perspective too. And I think I I might be um, just conflating this with a podcast I was listening to by Hidden Brain. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense applying natural selection to religion. Because if you think about which religions would do best within a population, it's obviously going to be the ones that allow you to most, fornicate most support, more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Because like, yeah. if you look at the religions that say like, okay, having sex is a sin, you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Versus... Okay, like having sex is fine so long as you have one partner, um, you do it for purposes of having a child, and you know, like etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. If you look at which of those two religions are going to do better, obviously it's the one that's going to be yielding more children, who then are going to be learning the religion from their parents and so forth. Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually don't think the yeah. book mentioned that, just because I don't think I've heard that before. Like the extension of applying natural selection to, um to religion as a study but i think that's really really cool that definitely makes sense to me too i think an interesting point too is that um you know these monotheistic religions are also responsible for to a large extent for like why we have patriarchal societies and they've kind of to a large extent shaped how our society views things like property ownership and things like that um and i think really the the only reason that humans are monogamous is because of these religions have kind of like were brought up as a way for people to accurately determine which child was theirs and also like you know what they owned from that and so responsibility was like a huge thing and then you know obviously you have uh inheritance laws from that so like if you're a child of this person then when they die you can get this um so i think it's actually really interesting and and also the result of a lot of inequities in the modern world you know things like how women couldn't own property um Mm -hmm. and a lot of religions back that too so really really interesting for sure so what were your thoughts on the whole religion debacle over there and the book uh i think it was pretty good uh what i didn't like was he kind of like presented religion as kind of mostly like a tool um not just for conquering but like for organizing society and i I definitely agree with that but i think there's a lot of things like self-actualization and you know ethics and things that 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 he didn't necessarily explore uh, but like I said, I want to get too critical yet. We'll go into like kind of what we think first, just because, yeah, I do. I do want people to form their own opinion of whether or not they want to read this book. To be clear, mm-hmm. though, I definitely think you should read this book, regardless of who you are. Um, but yeah, um, continuing on, I think part four was on the revolution of science. And this was a really, really good part of the book, in my opinion. So it starts with like knowing what we don't know goes on to the quest for knowledge and land, the myth of capitalism, the revolution of industry, and the revolution of society, and then finally to, like, theories of happiness and with, like, closing thoughts on the book. But uh, there's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, This is a lot happening here. Yeah, there's a lot happening in this section. This is probably, I think, my favorite section, along with kind of, like, part three as well, which was... What was part three? The creation of a global society. Um, So... Uh, To start with, I think uh, the main takeaway from this entire section is humans started being okay with ignorance. Um, See, in previous societies um, and previous, like, schools of thought, especially religious schools of thought, um, the idea is always that, like, you know, your religion knows everything. There's an answer for everything. No matter what it is, there's an explanation, blah, 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 right? Um, And I think the scientific revolution, while obviously, like, the scientific method is integral to that, a lot of it was being okay with ignorance so like saying 
that you don't know something or you don't have the answer to that. And, uh, you know, striving for new knowledge is really only possible if you start from a place of ignorance. You have to admit that you don't know something in order to learn more about it. If you assume you know everything and you assume you know, you know, like the why of everything as well, then it's kind of impossible to progress in your knowledge of that thing. So I think that was like the main point of this. Um, yeah, the kind of, that that kind of revolution and being okay with ignorance really emphasize observation and math and striving for new powers. Um, and that was kind of like the key takeaway for me there. And, you know, it's definitely indicative of what we have come to associate as like Western values or Western ideals. Um, we as a society, especially in North America, like definitely really, really believe in the power of the scientific method and the power of observation and mathematics and reason over things like, uh, you know, intuition or emotion. Yeah, the, I think, yeah, like a really interesting, important point you mentioned was that how it's, it marked like the scientific revolution kind of marked like a revolution about, of ignorance above mm -hmm. all else. Yeah, before we did ascribe everything to God and now we had to, if we wanted to do better and like allow ourselves to navigate through the world a lot more efficiently, we did have to recognize our shortcomings and say, okay, well, maybe it's not, okay, like, I suppose in pre, in uh, framing what like, what I'm going to say is that the Catholic Church, a lot of people think, is completely disavowed from um, science, but mm -hmm. they actually do have their own um they re not necessarily research group, but they do have their own school of science where they do um, pursue ap academic um, like pursuits. Mm -hmm. And their view is that if they discover something that runs contrary to their initial beliefs, uh -huh. it's not that God was wrong. It's just that our perception of what God did was wrong. Mm-hmm. And putting the onus on us and not obviously in that in uh, that God was wrong. Yeah. So that was an important step towards admitting our shortcomings again. Um, it's also interesting in looking at the, um, the military industrial complex, um, looking at how wars are a scientific production. And if it weren't for wars, we probably would have been a couple of decades behind in terms of um, innovation. Like, mm -hmm. wars have produced the capital required for so much scientific advancement. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Nuclear power the would internet. not have been a thing without the Manhattan Project and the atomic bombs and all that, right? So, yeah, the, things like that. Yeah, and that was a huge thing. That Honestly, that's one of my favorite moments in history. Like, I, I, I know it was like a lot of... <laughs> it, it was really bad. It was really bad. But specifically, um, the moment when... Uh, you're probably familiar with like Oppenheimer's quote mm -hmm. when he saw the atomic bomb dropped... Um, I have now become death, the destroyer of worlds. Yeah. And, you know, just like there's, you can listen to a clip of this exact um, uh, exchange happening and just, it's such a powerful thing. It's insane. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like we are so terrible. Like we are so bad as, as this force on the planet. And like we think that the world is, the, the world doesn't care how well we do, how we, well we proliferate, and nature isn't becoming, it, nature isn't getting destroyed, quote unquote. Nature is just changing through our actions on the earth. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, like an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs a couple of the billion. Yeah. No, a couple hundred million years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not billion. Um, I think life started you know, yeah. 1.2 billion years ago on Earth or something like that. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Not, yeah, but still, yeah, I get your point. Um, but, like, yes, yeah, so microorganisms. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and, like, as a consequence of that, we were allowed to um, grow and thrive as a species. And who knows, like, if that were to happen again, maybe, like, rats and cockroaches, super intelligent rats and cockroaches are going to arise from the rubble. Who knows? Yeah um yeah so i don't know what else what kind of thoughts you have also on this yeah no i definitely see that um i think another thing that, that really interested me was like kind of like the myth of capitalism that they mentioned as well um and that was like a really interesting point in the book because uh, we kind of like accept a capitalist society and we think we have like a pure capitalist society which we obviously don't um you know we live in a much more protected hybrid economy than than most people think there isn't really like a pure capitalist society left on earth um but we kind of all believe in the power of markets and the power of capitalism and you know market output increasing forever and things like that uh but that he he kind of mentions this as well and it kind of ties into his um larger theory about intersubjectivity but that's a myth that we all choose to believe in um especially the markets like we believe and have a trust and optimism about progress and growth um, that kind of allows us to have the society that we have today. Um, and it's kind of predicated on things growing forever, which they obviously cannot. Um, there, there is like an upper limit to things like resources and things like that. Um, but I think this is most evident um, in like kind of like the fundamental capitalist exchange. So, you know, like when you go to a bank and you take out a loan and you use that loan to buy something and then that guy who bought something like, or you, let's say you buy something from someone and you pay it in credit or you pay it with a, with a card or whatever, and that money goes straight to his bank account. When you think about that, 90% of the wealth in that kind of like flow of exchange doesn't actually exist. You know, it's all based on trust and optimism and, you know, a shared belief in this system. Like when you take out a loan, you don't have that money. That money doesn't exist. That wealth is like instantly created. If everybody in the world were to call out their loans right now and and everybody in the world who had like money were to get out cash there wouldn't be even like 10 percent of the cash required to like supply everybody right so it kind of all is predicated on this shared belief and and trust in the system and without that trust that you know people pay back loans or without the trust that my money actually is in my account or the money will come to my account when you pay something those things like aren't necessarily true but without that trust we can't actually have the system that we have in place so i think that was pretty cool too yeah i think the interesting thing about that and the whole credit system is um and i'm not sure if that this still holds true today but i believe that um, banks are allowed to loan ten dollars for every one dollar that they actually had mm-hmm. so kind of like you said like yeah 90 percent of the money that's in our accounts aren't actually covered by physical like bank notes and coins mm-hmm but the whole credit system is founded on the belief or assumption that the future is going to be better than it is today. Mm-hmm. So that ties into um, time value pretty of much money. everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not even just time value of money. They're just looking at like innovation and um, prosperity, GDP, mm-hmm. everything to deal with that. Just because, yeah, this whole credit system is basically like that's how bubbles form, right? Like they keep mm-hmm. printing money and they hope that innovation can catch up and that there will be some concrete thing that can basically um, Say that justify all that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is why like, the credit system wasn't a thing until relatively recently. 
because I a couple centuries ago, like you couldn't be sure that the future really would be better than it was today when disease and poverty were so strife in the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like we really do take for granted like the times we live in as a consequence of that. Definitely, yeah. I think it definitely shaped how we kind of view society. Um, yeah, and then I think the last couple parts, he's talked about the revolution of industry. Um, you know, we started harnessing different types of energy and that allowed us to like exponentially increase as a society. Uh, we also uh, like had a revolution as a society. Uh, I think the big thing was time. So time used to be measured in seasons in the agricultural revolution, but now time is measured in days, in work days, in eight hour segments, in 24 hour segments, in one week segments. Um, Whack. And that has definitely changed, you know, how humans operate. Uh, I think it's a really good tie in actually to the next chapter, which was theories of happiness, um, you know, and like the whole idea of like having time bounds and how that influences anxiety and expectations and things like that. He has a whole section on like, you know, what are the different theories of happiness? Namely, there's four. There's the expectation theory, the biological theory, the finding meaning theory and the present moment theory. We won't get into all of those today, but I think it, it's very interesting how like kind of time relates to how happiness is defined and constructed in our in our lives i think we can dedicate like an episode to that like the whole area of positive psychology is definitely something that i'm very interested in and mm-hmm. is actually the most popular course at yale too is the positive psych course so. yeah i have heard that i forget yeah. where we read that quote there's definitely something we read together because yeah i've heard that quote too. yeah um and then the last chapter is the birth of a new species he actually has another book out it's called homo deus I highly recommend reading that as well. But this is kind of just like a step into that. But essentially, uh, his he closes, um, you know, his thoughts on the book with, uh, we're starting to be birthed into a new species, and that species will be the end of humans, like Homo sapiens, uh, and that is Homo Deus, um, essentially like biological humans that are cyborgs. But um, his theory is that so Homo Homo Deus translated into God Man. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, yeah. Homo meaning man, and then Deus meaning God. Yeah. Um, and so his theory is that, you know, as we gain scientific ability and especially like sequencing ability and the ability to change genes and things like that, we're going to become amortal. Um, amortal is as distinguished from immortal. Immortal being like you can't die. Amortal being um, like you can't die of natural causes, but you can still be killed. Um, and so he, he argues that like once we are able to kind of like have complete control over our DNA and in the environment around us, then we're going to evolve into these amortal species. And that species will you know become the new standard on Earth rather than Homo sapiens, um, which is a cool thought for sure. Uh, he gets very deep into that in his book, Homo Deus, and sort of some of the more technological breakthroughs. And if you're more interested in tech and like current news and things like that, I think that's a better book to read for sure for that sort of thing. But so let's uh i mean i guess we've kind of reached the end of the book here so let's get into what we personally thought about the book and like our overall rating yeah uh you want to go first i can go first i have a lot of thoughts so uh i'll like take some breaks as well because y'all are probably tired of hearing my voice but um (laughs) you know i'd say overall it's a 4.5 out of 5 for me um i think it was a really good book um it it's a, I think it's an important read for most people just because things like this are really good books to read when you don't have time to read about anthropology and like papers and things like that. It's a very accessible read. Uh, it's a short read too. I mean, relatively short. It's a big book, relatively, but like, I mean, yeah. you only need to read this one book. You don't need to read like a million different papers and things like that if you're like really into anthropology, which which is cool. So I think for that reason, everyone should read it. 
it's kind of based on uh, a very similar book, Jared Diamond's influential uh, work called Guns, Germs, and Steel, A Short History of Everyone for the Last 13,000 Years. Um, that's a really good book to read as well if you haven't re- re- read it. Um, but I think it's always curious to see how, you know, book reviews of things like this always talk about like things like, oh, written without bias. And actually, that's, I think, this book's greatest failing um, obviously, you can't write anything without bias. As a human being, you are speaking from a perspective. But uh, I think the biggest failing here is that Yuval frequently presents things as facts when they're actually opinions. Um, and he does a lot of hand-waving and generalization and sensationalization, uh, especially like sweeping comments um, that you know aren't necessarily true or backed up by studies. And when that kind of fails, he says, oh, most scientists agree. Uh, but... I think, you know, a lot of things aren't actually backed up. And I think the biggest example of this is uh, sometime in part four, or maybe this was part three, he talks about the Battle of Navarino. Um, so essentially the Battle of Navarino, and you can find this on Wikipedia as well, uh, was it happened in 1827, but essentially the Ottoman Empire owned uh, Greece, right? That Greece was part of the Ottoman Empire, and Greece wanted to become independent. Uh, so the Battle of Navarino was a naval battle where, you know, he says um, it starts with British investors being afraid of losing money if the Greeks lose their war because they have money invested in Greece. Right. So Britain, which was, you know, part of the allied forces helps. Uh, and I'm talking about allies like most of like Western Europe. This is obviously way before World War Two. Um, but Britain, as part of the allied forces, helps Greece win their independence because, you know, British investors um, like are kind of nervous about it. And he uses an example of, um, you know, like the whole monetary system and things like that. But if you actually do your research about this event um, and oh, sorry. And he also states that uh, after the British uh, organized this like battle, um, you know, Greece is freed. Uh, And this actually is completely factually incorrect. So uh, Greece actually wasn't freed until 1829, two years later. But the whole premise of the battle is also wrong. So. A little bit of a history lesson. I don't know if people really care about this battle in particular, but I think it's just interesting. Um, uh, Official British sentiment was actually to keep the Ottoman Empire. Most of Britain wanted to keep the Ottoman Empire because what was happening at the same time was that the USSR was gaining territory that the Ottoman Empire was losing. And so uh, obviously it wasn't called the USSR back then, but like Russia at large was increasing their territory to a large extent. Things like Afghanistan, for example, used to be under the Ottoman Empire. And as the Ottoman Empire was losing power, um, Russia gained a lot of their territory. So the Britons actually wanted to keep um, Greece part of the Ottoman Empire so that Russia can take extra territory. Uh, But the British public sentiment um, actually strongly supported the Greeks because they're uh, because a lot of Christian roots um, with like the Orthodox Christians in Greece and things like that. And so did the Russians, actually. Russians did want Greece to be independent, even though the Russian Empire at large wanted to gain territory. So really, like, it had nothing to do with the British investors and their, like, um, you know, interest in the territory. And it's just incredible how, like, certain things like this, like, he presents as facts, and it's very, very easy to gloss over them in the book. But when you actually do some reading, like, it doesn't really hold up to par. So that's one of my beasts with the book. Um, And I think the next one... And this is like kind of my late, like more major one is kind of the idea of the intersubject, intersubjective, uh, which is the the whole like shared beliefs, shared thought space, um, you know, myths kind of idea that he has going on in his book. 
And, you know, he only really presents anecdotal evidence for this claim. So he doesn't cite any empirical studies regarding the flexibility of humans towards these like intersubjective realities. He doesn't really cite any like mathematical models. Um, he doesn't really cite like any hardcore research backing this claim. It's kind of like his hypothesis. And in a way, this book is like his way to explain that hypothesis. It's definitely very much interwoven throughout it. Um, and it's, it's interesting because the term intersubject does exist in literature. Um, it's in psychology, it's in philosophy, but it primarily exists as as a synonym for agreement. Um, there's like it doesn't really mean exactly what he says in in this whole like in this entire book. Um, and the concept of intersubjectivity. Um, so I'm quoting right now from the journal of, Journal for Theory of Social Behavior uh, from a paper written in 2009. But the concept of intersubjectivity is used wildly, but with varying meanings. Broadly speaking, we take intersubjectivity to refer to the variety of possible relations between people's perspectives. If we take social life to be founded on interactions, then intersubjectivity should be a core concept for the social sciences in general and understanding social behavior in particular. Perhaps because of this broad relevancy, research has been fragmented and at least six definitions are in circulation. So it's not really like the, the one concept that he brings it out to be. And yeah, I just think for that reason, um, you know, there are certain things about this book where he he d doesn't distinguish between his opinions and facts. And he just kind of tries to back up this point without presenting like, you know, hardcore evidence for it as you would in a social science paper kind of environment. Right. And this is more so like obviously a book for the general reader. And for that, it's very, very valuable. But uh, his argument, I don't think really stands the, the test of research. So, yeah, I guess speaking to that point, I don't think there actually has been much um, rigorous research done into that field of study. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he was framing it more so in the light of this is my hypothesis for why this mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely a lot of points in the book where he is injecting his own uh, POV on it and his mm -hmm. own like he's thought it through himself. And this is what he where he stands on it. Mm -hmm. And I think he could do perhaps a bit of a better job in distinguishing that from um the the points he uh, places as factual and mm -hmm. he does do a good job of um, citing his sources so for I, I don't know I don't know enough about the naval battle to um, comment on that whole thing yeah um, frankly yeah, no I'm surprised yeah. Honestly, when like the book either. like passed through many through so many hands to get to um, a point of publication mm -hmm. so um, I don't know if like he did go through that whole chapter with like kind of like looking at it in a different perspective or yeah to be clear I don't, was... I don't think he was like factually inaccurate he like he didn't like lie in the book but he just kind of presented things as um you know for his, his to support his viewpoint on that particular issue rather than like um to, to actually describe the issue at hand. but yeah sorry continue. right right yeah. yeah again like it maybe he could have done a better job of like saying like for okay sure. like, this is what i think on it but yeah i still think that his the way he's framed everything is incredibly valuable if 100%. nothing else as an impor important like th thought provoking and um, reflective piece too mm -hmm. and i i suppose like it's i mean like like you said like yeah it's hard to mask your bias in in a lot of things it's hard to be entirely sure. objective but yeah like, i would say that this actually is probably my favorite book to date that i've read mm -hmm. um just because like i would be going through it and I would pause like at the end of every page and think like, oh shit, like, wow, that, 
there's a lot to kind of digest there mm-hmm, to unpack, and going yeah. through it. Yeah. And like, I, I would find myself just like, yeah, like I would stop on a page and then I would have to close the book for the night just because <laughs> I would end up going down like this, yeah, like Wikipedia or Google, like yeah. rabbit hole, just chasing these things. And it, it's, it's a very wide ranging book and it's incredibly um, important for that reason. So mm-hmm. this is, I, I don't want to say it's like a one-stop shop for everything like history and, um, anthropology related because like obviously there's a lot of value to be had in um, digesting a wide array of resources on that but i think it is this is a very timely and it will be a timeless book as well going forward Mm -hmm. um i've yet to go through homo deus so we'll see how that holds up yeah we'll do a review of that soon hopefully yeah definitely looking forward to that though yeah um but i would say that for sapiens for me, I think it would be a 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10. It's the same as 4.5 out of 5, I guess. Yeah. Multiplied by 2. Yeah. So, I don't know why you use a 5-point scale. You're my bad. I'll use a 10. <laughs> I don't know. Goodreads uses a 5-point scale. So does Amazon. So I don't know. That's just my immediate thought. Um, but wow. yeah, no. I, I Yeah. To, to be clear, like, you know, I presented these as kind of like a, not just as a devil's advocate. Like, I do truly believe in these things in terms of as critiques. But that's not to take away from the book at all. I think it's a great, mm-hmm. very, very well-written book. Like, his prose is very, very well done, in my opinion. Um, he, you know, is able to capture a wider audience's attention, which isn't always the case with books like this or, you know, books that are more into science. Uh, like, my mom read it, no problem. And, like, you know, a lot of people find this a very easy book to read, and I think that's very valuable. Like, I don't think that should be overlooked at all. For sure. Um, For sure. And yeah, I think it's a great read in terms of like a summary and not everybody has the interest or time to kind of get more into some of these deeper topics. And that's totally fine, too. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't I don't really want to be an anthropologist either. So it's a great read for that. There are a few other books and we'll link them in the description. But I think one that you would really enjoy is A Short History of Nearly Everything by uh, I forget his name. Is it Bill Bryson? Short History of Nearly Everything. Yeah, that's a popular title. eh? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is by Bill Bryson. It's a great book. Uh, really, really good book. It does the exact same thing this book does, but it starts from the beginning in terms of like the beginning of the Earth or the beginning of the universe. Like really. Big Bang. Yeah, Big Bang, and then like you know Earth, and then seven billion years later, and all that. Um, but yeah, great book as well. But yeah, to be clear, like this is a great book to read. I think my biggest advice to somebody who's starting out to read this uh, would be, you know, just try and remember that what he says, you know. And his ideas of things might not be the only idea out there. And as long as you're aware of that, I think, you know, there's no harm in consuming his ideas. And and his ideas are honestly really, really great on a lot of these things. So definitely think it it's is a, very interesting. Yeah. But very like, interesting. again, like with everything, it's it's important to take everything you read with a grain of salt mm-hmm. and don't take it as gospel just because mm-hmm. somebody authorita- authoritative said it. Absolutely. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Do your own research. Check his definitely. sources. Yeah. Um, just like yeah. we did in our news media episode you know exactly <laughs> um so yeah with that said highly i think we both can give it like a gold star highly recommend um mm-hmm. do check it out yeah. and if there's any perhaps any book recommendations that you guys would have for us that would be great we're always looking for new books to add to our reading list oh yeah ever expanding list yeah ever expanding um honestly it's fast running away from me because like it's hard to keep up but mm-hmm um yeah we have a little more time on our hands with this whole quarantine thing going on so we'll see how that goes for sure for sure anyways thanks for listening guys um you know stay knowledgeable stay safe and stay busy during quarantine 
good thing to pick up if you haven't is Sapiens and give it a read. This quarantine yeah, break sure. coming soon to a home near you. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Ciao.